Luke chapter 9, we're going to, uh, by God's grace, we're going to finish Luke chapter 9 uh, today. Uh, Let me just jump right in, right where we left off. We're picking it up at verse 37. Uh, Here's what Luke says. He says, now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain. You might want to underline or circle that. When they had come down from the mountain. You're like, Pastor Ted, I took one of the passed out Bibles. Fine. Underline it. Circle it. That's cool. Mark it up. (laughs) When they had come down from the mountain, uh, the next day, you might want to circle that as well. Hey, the next day when they came down from the mountain, a great multitude met him. A great multitude met him. Now, if you were with us last week, we were looking at the glory of God. We saw Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he was transfigured into his glory. Uh, One commentator said the real miracle wasn't that Jesus transfigured and that his glory was revealed. The real miracle was that all the rest of the time that he was on earth, that his glory wasn't manifested, that that his glory was was hidden in, in, in in his in in all of his glory and his, the brightness shining of of his countenance and so on, but Jesus there up on that Mount of Transfiguration, we looking at that last week and just taking note of the fact that how did this go down? How did this happen? It happened during a time of prayer. It happened as they were given to prayer, as they were fully awake that they beheld the glory of God. And we talked about how needful it is for us to live lives to where we are fully awake, that we are awake to the glory of God. But man, I had you underline this because I want you to see that it happens the next day. What do they do? They come down from the mountain. They come down from the mountain. Annie sings, tomorrow, tomorrow. I love you tomorrow. You're always a day away, right? And we go, oh man, tomorrow. Sometimes tomorrow isn't a mountaintop experience. Tomorrow is the day you come down from the mountain. That happens in our lives. See, because here's the thing. Man, we are promised in God's word that not only do we get to behold his glory, but listen, the Bible says in Colossians chapter 3, when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There is a promise that's coming in your life and my life that we're going to be glorified together with Jesus Christ in the future. Great and glorious promise. We have the glorious work of Jesus on the cross in the past, dying for our sins, and that gives us salvation. Thank you, Jesus, the work of Jesus in the past. We have the work of Jesus to look forward to in the future, to where we are going to be glorified together with him. That is awesome. That is amazing. This life doesn't end with the cross. It ends with glory. Yes, that's our future and our hope, and and. The, 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 but the point is, listen, we need to understand, you can't live perpetually on that mountain. You cannot live perpetually on that mountaintop here on earth. Here's why. Listen, yes, our promised future is in heaven, in glory, in perfected glory with the Lord. Yes, that's the hope that we need to keep focused on. And yes, God will give us a vision of his glory as we seek him. All of that is true. But visiting the mountaintop of perfected glory and living there are two different things entirely. 
Sooner or later, you've got to come down from the mountaintop. Sooner or later, you've got to live out your faith in a broken and in a fallen world. And that's the focus of our study today. And here's the question we're going to answer today in our study. How do we effectively transition from the, the mountaintop, the experience of glory, to the exercise of glory here on earth? Because not all of the things that you experience are going to appear glorious. Not all the things that you encounter are in fact going to be glorious. And we need to say, how do I take that glorious mountaintop experience when I behold the glory of God? And how do I translate that into the life which I have to leave? To live which isn't always glorious, which brings things to me that I have to deal with that are far from glorious. And that's what happens here. They come down off the mountaintop and a great multitude meets them. Verse 38, suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, teacher, I I implore you, begging you, look on my son for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. Far from glorious, what this kid is going through. And compounding it, verse 40, he says, So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Hey, I know that you're, you're apostles, but they're apostles right now. Because they're big fat failures. They can, I came to them, the guys that you empowered and, empowered and commissioned to do this, and they, and they came up empty, man. They couldn't do it. And so right away, you got Jesus and his disciples. They're going from the deified glory up on the mountaintop to the demonic oppression in the valley. They got a demon-filled kid. They got his desperate father. They got a group of defeated disciples. And we can't read it in the text here, but the harmony of the Gospels helps us understand when this crowd comes and they see Jesus and they go running to him, why is the crowd there in the first place? Here's why. Because all of the scribes had surrounded the disciples who were the F apostles at this point, the F apostles at this point, the failures, and they were using the occasion to attack them. And basically, there was this big argument that was taking place, and from the context of it, we can only surmise that the argument was them telling these disciples, hey, Jesus ain't the real deal, and you guys are a bunch of fakes and phonies and frauds, and you can't cast out this demon. And so there's this big confrontation that's happening, and the crowd had gathered to see that. And now Jesus comes down out of the midst, he comes out of the glory, and he's greeted with this whole scene. Demon-filled boy, desperate father, defeated disciples, disputing scribes. And it's like, good grief. You go from, you know, good glory to good grief. And, oh my gosh, what do I got to deal with this stuff? This is what's going down. And we see this happen in life. You know, years ago, at, a, at another church where I used to pastor, we had a men's retreat. And this incredible experience at this men's retreat God moving and working, and we saw his glory, and we're worshiping him. And one of the guys on the retreat, he got radically saved, gave his life to Jesus, and he's, he's motivated. Man, I'm going home, and everything's changing, man, when I get home. I am a, I'm a new man. Well, he didn't realize how much things were going to be changing when he got home. His wife had left him while he was up at the retreat, and she took every stick of furniture out of his house. He came home to an empty shell, an empty box. 
up on the mountaintop of glory down to this demonic oppression down here on earth. I don't know what it is about men's retreats. Another men's retreat we had with this church, mountaintop experience. Guy radically meets the Lord. God's rocking his world. Glorious experience. And so he endeavors, I'm coming down off the mountain, a changed man. Everything's going to change. And that was Saturday night. And, and back in those days, we had to set up on Sunday morning, so we structured our men's retreat such that they finished up Saturday night. We came home, and we told all the guys, bring your family to church tomorrow. And he did. He came home, brought his family to church the next day, and it lasted all of about three or four hours. And then what happens after church? They hook up with the neighbors. They start drinking, start partying. And before you know it, three o'clock in the morning rolls around and I'm in this guy's front yard along with a SWAT team because now he's barricaded inside his house. Up from the mountaintop of glory down to the demonic valley where, where the Satan is just right there. Satan wants to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so this is what's going on. And so Jesus comes and he's met by this crowd. And the scene, it demonstrates an enduring truth that there is a pressing need for Jesus. For these people in the Galilee region, they're dealing with demons, they're dealing with disease, they're dealing with this desperate need for the power of God in their lives. And hey, nothing changes. 2,000 years later, we are dealing with issues where we need the power of God to move and work in our lives. Many of you, you come in today and, man, you got it all going on on the outside, but you're dealing with stuff. And you're here, maybe you're hanging on by a thread and you're like, I'm desperate for the power of God to move and to work in my life. And listen, that's what we need. We need the power of God to work in our marriages, to work, maybe I'm dealing with depression, maybe I'm dealing with drugs, or maybe, maybe it's alcohol, whatever it is. Listen, There is a pressing need. And because there's a pressing need, what do we see Jesus do here? He presses his disciples into service. Because there's a pressing need in our our midst, God presses us into service. And these disciples, Jesus had called them, he'd equipped them, he'd commissioned them, he'd empowered them, he'd send them out. And we see back in the beginning of this chapter, They're having power in their lives. They're casting demons out of people and seeing people healed and all of this stuff. But man, somewhere between then and now, we get to verse 40 and this guy says, well, I asked these guys to do it and they couldn't do it. And so what does Jesus say in verse 41? Jesus answered and he said, oh, faithless and perverse generation, How long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Now, this isn't exactly the words that you see, that you think that Jesus is going to use in this situation. You don't, you don't automatically think that Jesus' response is going to be to turn on his disciples, because this is who he's talking about, and say, you know, you're faithless, you're a faithless generation. You're a perverse generation. I mean, Jesus essentially is saying to the dad, gee, bring him here. Let me me just clean up their mess. Let me take care. And you don't expect Jesus to say that. Now, where is Jesus coming from? Why such a harsh rebuke? Well, what we're going to see as we go through this chapter is a series of failures on the disciples' part. And and specifically, we're going to see that the disciples... We're lacking in three areas that Jesus wants to address. They're lacking in power, they're lacking in love, and they're lacking in discipline. 
And so Jesus, his frustration here is because of this lack and what he's intending to do is to tune these guys up to say, hey, this, you're, the, what you're doing and the way you're living and the way you're operating is not the powerful walk that I want my, my children, certainly my disciples, I don't want them to walk in this way. And so this is where Jesus is coming from. First of all, if you're taking notes, the first thing that they're lacking in is that they're lacking in power. They're lacking in power. Jesus says to him, hey, bring your son here to me. And while he was still coming, verse 42, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. And then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. Now, this is a bold demon. I mean, Jesus is the one who says, bring him here to me. And yet the demon is still going for broke, trying to keep this guy from coming to the Lord. And let me just say this, not in my notes, but I'll just throw it out there real quick. The enemy does this. This is what he does. You ever been praying fervently for a family member or a friend to come to know the Lord? Maybe you bring him to church and, and you see, man, that the Lord, I mean, they're, they're, they're starting to be drawn by the Spirit of God. And what inevitably ends up happening is the enemy will redouble his efforts to train wreck them, to keep them from coming to the Lord. This is exactly what we see here. And so what, what happens here is that, you know, while he's still coming, the demon throws him down. Now, Jesus is Jesus. He's like, I mean, you can imagine, he's looking at this demon, he's like, loser, <laughs> that ain't, ain't going to work. You know, it, it's like, please, get out of the way. And, and Jesus touches and, and heals this child. By the way, some of you, just, pay, just take note of that, the, 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 this this thing that his son is up against, you got to understand, where does healing come from? It comes from when the father brought his son to Jesus. And, and I see so many parents are dealing with issues with their kids, trouble with their kids. Listen, bring your children to Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can heal. Jesus is the only one that can save. Jesus is the only one that can deliver them from the demonic assailing that is coming against them. And so we see that this, this, this demon certainly is bold, throws him down, tries to keep him away. Jesus is Jesus, so he's like, you know, good try, get out of here. Heals the kid, gives him back to his father. Verse 43, and they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, and when it says but there, the however there, this is like take note, because everybody's all about this. But Jesus said to his disciples, verse 44, let these words sink down into your ears for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Jesus is saying, look, I realize this is an amazing thing and you're all about that and you're marveling at that. But rather than marveling right now, you need to take note. You, you, this thing's got to sink down into your ear. This, thing's, this has got to sink down into the core of your being. You got to get what I'm saying here. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about, uh, about this, so, about this saying. So the first thing to note, certainly, bold demon. Yeah, we got that. And, and as well, note that this is a powerful demonic influence on this kid. The, the disciples, again, they'd had previous success about demons, so, so what, what's going on here? A couple of things. First of all, we need to understand 
that, that there are different there, there are differences in the demonic realm. There are, there are different levels of, of demonic power. Uh, Paul talked about this in Ephesians chapter 6. And basically, in Ephesians 6, in verse 12, Paul says that there, there are ranks of demonic powers. He describes them as principalities and powers. And, and evidently, some demonic power, some demonic, you know, some demons are, are, are stronger and more stubbornly resistant than others. By the way, just understand that, that demonic activity in the world is a real thing. The Bible teaches that when Satan fell, a third of the angels fell with him. And so there is very real demonic activity on the earth. It happens. Uh, there, you know, and, and you know, Satan is, you know, a lot of times people will, will ascribe you know, godly attributes to Satan. He is not God. He does not possess the attributes of God. And so you know, one of the attributes of God is that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. Satan can't be everywhere all the time. So chances are really good that you, if you've been attacked or if you've been tempted, it hasn't been Satan himself. Frankly, like I like to say, he's got bigger fish to fry than you or me. So, so it's probably not Satan himself that we deal with, but we deal with, with principalities and powers. And there are, there are, you know, scores of demons working in this world. It's a real thing. And, and so the, the fact of the matter is some of them are evidently stronger than others. Now, for Jesus, it doesn't matter. I mean, he was tempted by Satan himself and withstood Satan. And he's, he's God and he's powerful and he's, you know, here and empowered with the Holy Spirit. And so, so you know, that. It's no match for the Lord. But <clears throat> we need to understand, as everybody's marveling here, Jesus says, let these words sink down into your ears. The Son of Man is be- about to be tr- betrayed in the hands of men. Now again, the harmony of the Gospels helps us here because Matthew's Gospel gives us more details about this event. And basically what happened was it says afterwards the disciples asked Jesus privately, why couldn't we cast out that demon? And he listened to what Jesus said. He said, you don't have enough faith. Jesus told them, I will tell, I, I, I'll tell you the truth. If you had faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there and it would move. Nothing would be impossible, but this kind of demon won't leave except by prayer and fasting. Listen, you can't miss what just happened, what G- this, this information that Matthew's gospel gives us. What happens here is what Jesus says to his disciples, why couldn't you have victory over this demon? Why couldn't you cast him out? He says, you lack power because you lack faith. And because they lacked faith, they also lacked the disciplines of prayer and fasting. He's, that's what Jesus means when he says this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. And the implication is that they weren't. That the disciples weren't praying and fasting. Now we looked at this in, in our text last week. We looked at this issue of prayer. When did the disciples see the glory of God? They saw the glory of God when they were on the mountaintop and when they were engaged in prayer. And prayer is where we align our heart and our will with God's heart and with God's will. Just as Billy Graham said that prayer is the rope that pulls God and man together, but it doesn't pull God down to us, it pulls us up to Him. This is the idea of prayer. It is prayer that preceded the unveiling of the Lord's glory. And Jesus is telling His disciples, you're not doing that. As well, He tells them that they weren't fasting. 
Fasting is another spiritual discipline, which essentially it's a denial of the flesh um, for for the purpose of feeding the spirit. That's the idea. And it's not that prayer and fasting made them more worthy to cast out the demon. The idea is that it draws us closer to God and it puts us more in line with his power. And here's the point. The disciples weren't doing that. The disciples weren't ready when they should have been. They should have been ready. And Jesus, you know, he'd called them. He'd commissioned them. He'd empowered them. But because they weren't praying, because they weren't fasting, Jesus says, you lack faith. And so when the little boy was brought to them, metaphorically speaking, they're caught with their pants down. It's not like they could just say, oh, you know, gosh, hurry up. Let's pray and let's fast. It's too late by then. It's too late by then. Turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 6 real quick, just to, to your right there. Ephesians chapter 6. Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, we see something interesting. Paul, the apostle, is talking here. And he says this, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. I'm I'm reading Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, not in your own power, not in your own strength, which is what, by the way, the disciples, if they're not praying, if they're not fasting, and if they're engaging in the work of the Lord, not praying and not fasting, you know, what are they doing? They're, They're operating not in the power of God's strength, operating in their own power and in their own strength. And that's not what Paul says. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, when he says the wiles of the devil, that word wiles, it means schemes. It means strategy. And let me just tell you that the enemy has a scheme and a strategy to come against you, to attack you. He has a scheme and he has a strategy. We have to be aware of that. And Paul says, in order to combat that, we need to put on the whole armor of God. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. I like to tell couples in counseling, look, your spouse is not the enemy. It's not, you know, your problem isn't your wife. Your problem isn't your husband. Okay, yeah, they may, they may be, you know, they got issues we got to deal with. But you got to understand <clears throat> that there is an enemy that's at work, that's, that's in the full court press in your life. And that's what your wrestle is with. He says, verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for 
all the saints. And see, what happens is, is when the enemy comes, when they confront this demon, they're not ready. Look, the enemy, when he attacks you, when, when, when you are facing and up against principalities and powers in your life, it's not like the enemy comes and you can say, oh, wait, wait, wait hold on a minute. Man, I, re- I, I'm, I don't have the armor of God on. So, so just hang on, let me get the armor of God. The enemy isn't going to sit back and go, oh, okay, go, I'll wait. No, he's waiting for you not to have the power of God, not to have the armor of God on. That's when he's like, let's go, everybody on, dog pile on Ted, because he doesn't have the armor of God on. That's when he attacks. We have to understand that. So what's happening here <coughs> is, is the Lord... When he says, faithless and perverse generation, this is what he's talking about. He's saying, look, you, 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 you lack faith because you're not praying and because you're not fasting. That's why you couldn't deal with this demon. And we have to take a good long look in the mirror and we have to say, man, am I lacking in faith? Am, am I not engaged in prayer and fasting as a spiritual discipline to do, put me in a spiritual place to where now I can be focusing on putting on the whole armor of God and being in the Lord's word and all of these things that I need to do to put on that armor? That's the mirror we have to look at. See, what Jesus is worrying about, he's saying, look, Christianity is not a playground, it's a battleground. And we have to take a real hard look back, you know, here in, in Luke chapter 9. You've got to take a real hard look at what he says in verse 44. Why does he say, let these words sink down into your ears for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Why does he say that? Well, think about it. We get to look at it. We get to look at that statement through the rearview mirror. They haven't gone through it yet. Jesus had given them a warning about something that's going to come. But we sitting in this room today, 2018, we can go, well, we know what he's talking about. What's he talking about? He's talking about when Judas, what, what does the scripture say? It says that Satan filled his heart. That's what it says. And, and so what Jesus is talking about here, he's talking about demonic activity. He's telling his disciples, you guys need, you need to be tuned up and woken up to the fact that this, when you have difficulty, when you can't cast this demon out, you need to take a really good, long, hard look in the mirror at what that leads to. Because what that leads to is this steady decline in your spiritual life. Here's, here's what we got to say, practically speaking. Look, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about the sanctifying work that God wants to do. That's what this is all about. We, we have the saving work that God did through Christ Jesus on the cross for us 2,000 years ago. We have the glorifying work that God through Jesus Christ is going to do in our future in heaven. But in the middle of it, for the rest of your life, there's a sanctifying work that God wants to do. through, And it's a work that Jesus does as well, but it requires our cooperation. That's the focus here. That's the focus here. And so what Jesus is saying, he's, he's saying, look, you're lacking in power. That's the first thing. Second thing, if you're taking notes, what does he say? Well, he tells them they're lacking in love. Lacking in love. Well, let's go on. Verse 46. It says, Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. Which of us is the greatest? And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, he took a little child and he set him by him, set him in the midst of them, other texts tell us. And he said to his disciples, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, 
And whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all will be great. Jesus here, he's saying, look, you're lacking in, in, in love, right? Well, he goes on, and it says, verse 49, Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Now, this sounds like a total change in topic. It's not. It's the same issue of lacking in love. John says, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. And Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. We'll come back to that. And now it came to pass, verse 51, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him, to prepare the way for Jesus. Now again, This sounds like something totally different. It's all about this issue of love. And it's all showing us that the disciples lack in love. And the background information here at this point is to understand that Jews hated Samaritans. They they were half-breeds. They considered them as as spiritual sellouts. They thought that they, they were... They hated them so bad that if they were on a journey or on, you know, going from point A to point B and Samaria was in the middle of it, even though it was much shorter to go through Samaria, they would walk all the way around Samaria. They didn't even want to go in there. So you can imagine then Jesus is sending messengers out and he tells them to go to Samaria and they're like, we got to go to Samaria? He's like, yeah, go send messengers to Samaria. That's the whole background. So they go, but, verse 53, they did not receive him. The Samaritans rejected Jesus Because his face, it says, was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? James and John, known as the sons of thunder, showing up in all their glory here, like, hey, how about we put them in the smoking section right now? Just take them out, put them out of our misery. Let's just do this. But he, Jesus... He turned and rebuked them and he said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them, and they went to another village. Now we have three examples here, and each one reveals a lack of love. And this is the issue that Jesus is having with these guys, trying to get them tuned up, you know, to the, hey, your problem isn't just that you have a lack of power in your lives. Because you're not praying, you're not fasting. You, your problem as well is you've got a lack of love. First of all, you've got a lack of love for your brothers. You're all selfish, you're self-centered, we're arguing who's the greatest. Jesus goes, you want to know who the greatest is? The one that I want you to serve, this little child. That's, that's who the greatest is. You guys take the least, you, you, you take the last, you, you just do everything you can to serve the least among you, and, and then you'll be the greatest. But no, they, they have this lack of love for their brothers. They also have a lack of love for their neighbors. They're like, hey, wait, wait, this guy's casting out demons and he's not with us, so he needs to stop that nonsense. And it doesn't help that they're having success and the disciples aren't, right? It's like, wait a minute, we're supposed to do that. Knock it off, right? And think about the lack of love there. I, I just want you to imagine this father, who comes begging Jesus, he's, he's begging Jesus, do something for my son, and it's his only son, and you being parents, we understand, I mean, if that's your kid, 
You want that demon rebuked. You want that demon cast out. And, and so, and you know, I mean, we read the symptoms of the kid. It sounds like, you know, he's got epilepsy or whatever, but the Bible makes it clear he's dealing with a demon. And you want that taken care of. And so what happens is, Jesus shows up and he heals this guy. And so these disciples, they're lacking in love because evidently there's other people in Jesus' name. They're out operating and they're casting out demons and they want to shut that down because that's not sanctioned by us, man. We ain't doing that stuff. And it's, it's, a, it's just a lack of love on their heart. Well, as well, they've got a lack of love for their enemies. They want to call down fire upon the Samaritans. And Jesus says, look, you don't know what kind of spirit you're of right now because that's not my spirit. See, listen, here's what, here's what the, the, the Lord knows. The Lord knows, hey, that he's going to do a miraculous work in, in the Samaritan's life. This is what's coming down the road. See, Paul said this to the Philippians. He said, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. I love the way the New, the New Living Translation puts that verse. Paul says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. And then he goes on to say this. He says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What's the point? The point is, is that God operates in love. That's how God operates. He doesn't operate by saying, hey, they rejected me, let's, let's smoke them. No, he, he is long-suffering, he is patient. And if you read in the book of Acts, what you realize, what Jesus knows, because he's God, what the, what, what, what the disciples haven't gotten the memo on yet, don't realize, they got this, this awful spirit. Jesus is like, look, I'm long-suffering. And what he knows is a few years from now, what's going to happen is that... <clears throat> The Lord is going to ascend into heaven. He's going, to, he's going to mobilize his disciples. There's going to be a great work in Jerusalem, and ultimately that work is going to start spreading out. And what's going to happen is a guy by the name of Philip is going to go to Samaria by the leading of the Holy Spirit, and there's going to be a revival in Samaria. He's going to start Calvary Chapel in Samaria, and it's going to go off the hook. Like, this is what's going to happen. Philip, Acts 5, 8, verses 5 through 8 says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria, preached Christ to them and the multitudes with one accord heeding the things spoken by Philip hearing and seeing the miracles which he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed and listen there was great joy in that city Jesus knows something they don't and God's love is a heart of love let me ask you a question what does Jesus know that you don't know right now What's an area in your life where you're struggling to, to live in a loving way, maybe towards a, a brother or a sister or a neighbor, or maybe it's an enemy? What is, what's an area where you're struggling to live in love, and what might Jesus know about that situation that you don't? See, so the disciples, they're lacking in, in power, and, and they're, they're, they're lacking in love. And thirdly, notice they're lacking in discipline. Verse 57, now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere you go. 
And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now the issue here isn't that his dad has died and he needs to go perform the funeral. That's not the circumstance. The circumstance here is, hey, you know, my dad's getting older in years and, you know, eventually he's going to die. That's kind of the attitude here. So, hey, let me deal with that. Let me just kind of give that my focus first before following you. And the Lord says to him, let the dead, verse 60, bury their own dead, but you go and you preach the kingdom of God. Now we have a third example, and another also said, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now again, three examples, and the idea in all three of these examples is the same. Here's the idea. Whose kingdom are you focused on? That's the idea. The issue is, look, all of these examples is a litmus test which is revealing what kingdom you're living for. This first guy, he's, he's stuck on his possessions. He's like, hey, you know what, I'll follow you anywhere. And the Lord is like, yeah? Okay, well, what if it costs you some of the luxuries in your life? You, you still willing to follow me? Second guy, he's stuck on his priorities. He's like, hey, I have some relationships right now in my life that are more important than my relationship with you. That's really what he's saying. And Jesus is like, look, there's nothing more important than the kingdom of God. you got to get that straight. And then this third guy, he's stuck on his pursuits. He says to the Lord, hey, you know what? i got some sentimental earthly attachments that i got to attend to. And the Lord is saying to him effectively, look, your, your focus is divided. you got one foot in the world and you got one foot in the, in the kingdom of God. And, and it ain't going to work that way. That's why he gives this illustration, verse 62, that no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, now I'm a California boy, Southern California guy. I grew up at the beach. All right? I don't know nothing about plowing. But I'm told that the way that you plow is that you keep focused on a fixed object way out in the distance. And I had a guy come up to me after, second service, or after first service telling me, uh, that, in fact, he does have farm experience. He says that's exactly how it works. He says, as a matter of fact, if you look back while you're plowing, not only don't you plow a straight line, <coughs> but that the plow constantly is wanting to jerk off course. And it's, it's just constantly wanting to go all over the place. And so that fixed point way out in the distance is so critically important because otherwise that plow is going to go somewhere else and he said and then the problem compounds itself because the moment that you've plowed an unplumb line all the subsequent lines constantly that plow wants to follow that he says it becomes so impossible you actually have to to dig everything out and just and cover it cover it all over and start way back from the beginning if you don't start in the beginning picking a fixed line. Here's what the Lord is saying. He's saying you can't be double-minded. You can't be looking all around. And, you know, metaphorically speaking, when you say, oh, I want to live the Christian life, you can't constantly be looking back at the world because then you, you, you're going to lose your plumb line. It's going to be a mess. And, that, and, and you're, you know, the plow's constantly going to want to go those other directions. You want to follow after the Lord, it's going to require that you keep your eyes fixed on following the Lord. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what we've got to do. We've got to fix our eyes upon the Lord. We have to do that. 
And, and, and so, <laughs> well, I'll just tell the story because you're going to be wondering why I'm laughing up here. So I was just saying, <laughs> years ago, we had a, we had a thing printed up. Uh, it was based on, on that Hebrew scripture, you know, uh, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who the joy set before him. And the printer printed it up, uh, looking into Jesus. You know, looking in, we're looking into Jesus. We're not looking under Jesus, we're just looking into Jesus kind of thing. And that's the way some people live their life. I'm looking into Jesus. And they're looking all over the place. So this is what the Lord is saying. And here's the question we asked at the beginning. And I just want to finish up and close right here. The question we asked at the beginning was, how do we effectively transition from the experience of glory to the exercise of glory? And it's in these three areas. It's continuing in faith. It's continuing in love. Listen, it's continuing in discipline. This is what we're called to do. And I'm just going to fast forward to Luke chapter 14. If you want to turn there with me, you can. This is where I want to finish up. I want you to hear Jesus' word on this. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25, the multitudes went with him. And Jesus takes the occasion, he turns to the multitudes. He wants to set them straight. He wants to tell them, hey, here's what's up with the kingdom of God. These are the ABCs of following me. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me, And does not hate his father and his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, his sisters. Yes, and his own life also. He cannot be my disciples. Now, the idea here is in comparison to your love of God. That you should love God so much that any other relationship in your life, loving as it will be. Jesus isn't saying that you need to hate your brothers and sisters and your children and all that. He's saying that you should love him so much that everything else looks like hate in comparison for how much you love him. He says, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first, count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he laid the foundation, he's not able to finish all who see it and begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, here it is, which, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Here's the issue. We have to transition from the experience of glory on the mountaintop to the exercise of glory in the valley, and it requires a con- continuing in the faith, continuing in love, and continuing in a disciplined following after the Lord.